Joyeux Noël. Oh, there you go. Uh, Feliz Natal. Just check. Okay, no Brazilians here today. All right. Uh, uh, Feliz Navidad. We know that one. Am I right? Feliz Navidad. Merry Christmas. Mungu Akubariki. Okay, cup. All right, there we go. Um, speaking in tongues over here, that's what I'm doing. Filled with the Holy Ghost. Uh, th- uh, my wife and I have uh, three kids, and uh, all three of them were born in hospitals with doctors and nurses and equipment and sanitation, and, and all kinds of resources were available to us when, well, I was going to say when we gave birth, but I got to be honest, I didn't do jack uh, when she gave birth to all three of our kids. Uh, but when Mary gave birth to Jesus, it wasn't, she didn't have any of that stuff. Like, you wouldn't wish those circumstances on, on anybody. And, you know, she, she probably didn't want to have to give birth to her first baby uh, under those uh, circumstances either. Now, Matthew, which is the first book in the second part of the Bible, Christians refer to this as the New Testament. It's the new covenant, the new relationship. The first covenant, the Old Testament, uh, that was based on man's ability to keep the rules. And we stunk at that. So God goes, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to keep the rules on your behalf. We're going to make a new covenant based on my ability to keep the rules on your behalf, which is why we have the whole second part of the Bible, if you didn't know. But the first four books in the second part of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the four different narratives of the life of Jesus, and they cover a lot of the same content. This is Chuck on the front row, and if I was going to write a description of what Chuck looked like from the front, and you wrote a description of what Chuck looked like, that almost almost sounds like a tongue twister, (laughs) Uh, but if you were going to write a description of what Chuck looks like from the back, our details would not be exactly the same. Would you agree? Right? Because we're describing the same person from different angles, so we're going to have different details. Those details don't contradict each other. Those details complement each other. So if you want to know what Chuck actually looks like, and you have two different descriptions, you want to read them both and see how they fit together. So we're going to be doing that today with Matthew and Luke. Mark doesn't talk about the birth of Jesus. Jesus shows up, talking to the fishermen, leave your nets. But Mark, uh, Matthew, and Luke tell us uh, about the, the manger scene. So we're going to read the different details that are in each and see what we learn from the Christmas story today. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to go to Luke chapter 2, and I'm going to start reading in verse 1. It says, at that time, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census or tax should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This is the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And uh, this, was, this was brutal. About 15 years before the birth of Jesus, the Romans had come through uh, Israel. Uh, the Jewish people had lived there uh, for 250, excuse me, for 2,500 years. Uh, the Jewish people have lived in that part of the world, minus the time that they were exiled by the Assyrians and then by the Babylonians and then the Persians and then they came. There's a bunch of history uh, uh, in there. But when the Romans came in, uh, they, they made a statement unlike any of the other conquering oppressors had ever made. A fit like I said, 15 years before Jesus was born, on the road between Galilee in the north and Jerusalem in the south, they had executed thousands of people in one large mass crucifixion on the side of the road. And the valley was filled. And we, this, uh, that, this part isn't even in the Bible. Uh, we just know this from history, that there were thousands of crosses with random people they would pull out of the crowd to execute. So when the Romans came in, it was shock and awe. They execute thousands of people on all these crosses. Nobody was allowed to take their bodies down, and they were left to rot in the sun. So here it is 15 years later. Those crosses are probably still there. Bodies probably not so much anymore, but like that, 
that's the Romans. They, they, they terrified people. But this is the first time that they're requiring the people that they terrorize to pay their salaries. Like, that's what this tax is, right? They all got to go back to their hometown where the, the, the Jewish people have always done a really great job with genealogies or, or had always done a great job with genealogies. So you had to go back to your hometown so that the Romans could check you off the list and you would make sure that you paid your extra tax. This is, this is different than the taxes that you would pay to the tax collectors. This was a census tax. And this funded the Roman military. They could come in and kill you. There was nothing that you could do about it. They could take your stuff. There was nothing you could do about it. They, they could compel you to carry their luggage for a mile. And Jesus famously said, so go the extra mile. Have you ever heard of the phrase, go the extra mile? That actually comes from Jesus in reference to the way that the Romans would abuse people, right? So now Augustus is making everybody pay extra taxes in this census because he wants to kill, hurt, and maim more people. That's what this is about. Verse, verse three. So all returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census, this tax. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, and Matthew tells us, that, by the way, that Mary is also a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, which is David's ancient home. And he traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. So that was up north. And you've got Jerusalem down here in the south. And Bethlehem is five and a half miles southwest of Jerusalem. And it depends on if you're coming from north Nazareth to southern Bethlehem, that would be 80 miles. If it's south Nazareth to northern Bethlehem, that'd be 70 miles. So we'll call it 75 miles. So Joseph has to go from, he has to take a 75-mile hike, basically, to go pay these taxes. Um, verse 5, and he took with him Mary, his fiancée, who was now obviously pregnant. We know that she's nine months pregnant. The Bible doesn't say anything about Jesus being born prematurely. We think that he was, I mean, from all indications of the way that it's written, he went full term. So when it says she's obviously pregnant, she's ready to give birth, and she has to go with him. Now, my wife and I were engaged for about six months before we were married. I recommend short engagements, by the way. Uh, anyway, but she went to go live with her parents the summer before we got married. We got married in August, and I wasn't going to see her for two months before the wedding. And so I said, hey, can I come live with you guys? And they said, sure. And they put me in a rat-infested, cockroach-filled trailer in their backyard. And I was happy to do it, right? Because I got to see her every day. Uh, but in those days, the reason why Mary had to go with, with Joseph is because once you were engaged in that culture, and even still, uh, one of my son's best friends is, is Muslim, and he got engaged yesterday to his uh, Muslim wife, and so now they have to live together in her family's home, just on separate sides of the house. And so he now financially is already responsible for her, even though he doesn't get married to her until July. Well, that's a, it's not a Muslim custom, that's a Far Eastern custom is what that was. And so Mary and Joseph had an arranged marriage, so Mary's parents would have like talked to Joseph's parents, and they would have courted in public. There wouldn't have been any private dates. And the parents would have been around to watch how Joseph treats their daughter, Mary. And so Joseph's parents at some point said, we think Mary would be a good match for our son. And Mary's parents would have said, well, we think Joseph would be a good match. This is great. And that matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. Anybody further on the roof? Hate it as much as me? Anybody? Anybody? All right. Uh, so then, then once they were engaged, now Joseph is responsible for her. 
she would have moved into his house and he would have had to build an extra room onto the side of his house for her to live in. And he was never allowed into that side of the house and she was never allowed onto his side, uh, into his bedroom. And so I bet you the mother-in-law, she had a cot probably right in the hallway. So it's a very conservative Jewish family. They would have never been allowed to go into each other's rooms at all, but now he's responsible for it. So if he has to go from Nazareth down to Bethlehem, she has to go with him. And I was talking to my wife this past week. I said, can you imagine how difficult that was? And she goes, maybe. You remember the summer when you made me ride in the bus for 12 hours when I was nine months pregnant with Garrett? Yeah, I know, because I was a moron, but I didn't know any better. I was a youth pastor in Denver. We had a large student ministry, and we found out on January 5th, I only know this because I kept a journal at that time, that we found out that we, that we were pregnant. And by we, I mean she, pregnant <laughs> on January 5th. Now, we didn't find out it was going to be a boy until a few months later. Uh, and then, but I had to plan youth camp. And I was like, you know what? I want to make sure that we don't plan youth camp at the same time that my wife is giving birth to our son. So how much time does she need? I'm thinking like, oh, probably a couple of weeks. So I planned camp for the second week of August. And the due date was August 31st. I know. So she's great with child. And we have to go from Denver to Junction City, Kansas, which I don't know if you know that middle of America is a desert. We just call it Kansas. And in the summer, there's no rain. And it's hot. I don't know how anybody lives in Kansas in the summer. It is horrible. Like, it is it's really bad. And so it's, a, it's an eight-hour trip unless the youth pastor's wife is pregnant. And then it's a 12-hour trip because you're stopping every single hour at a truck stop that gives you a free ice cream cone if you fill up with gas. Um, and then we, so Billy Jane at eight and a half months pregnant goes from Denver in a, an unair conditioned school bus with 65 other teenagers across the country to Junction City, Kansas to stay in a cabin that doesn't have air conditioning either. To take showers after all the other girls did when there's no more hot water. And she goes, you remember? And I said, no, I was almost about to forget that, but apparently you remember. But for Mary, it was even worse. Because she didn't get to stop at a Love's truck stop every hour on the hour and get to go inside and get herself a, an ice cream cone. I said, she had to ride on a donkey for 75 years, or 75, <laughs> probably felt like that, for 75 miles. And my wife said, well, the Bible doesn't even say that she had a donkey. And I checked. My wife is right. There's nothing in the Bible that says she rode a donkey. Like, we don't know how they got from Nazareth to, to Bethlehem. Did, they, did she get a donkey? I don't know. If they had one and he was smart, she got to ride it. Was it a horse? Was it a cart? She's in the cart next to him. Or did she actually have to walk 75 miles? I don't know. Like, I'm going to assume that she got to ride a donkey. If she's riding a donkey nine months pregnant, 75 miles, it makes sense that she had the baby the moment she got off that donkey. Yeah. Am I right? And that's exactly what happens. Go back to the story. Uh, he took with him Mary, his fiancée, who was now obviously pregnant. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born, and she gave birth to her first child, a son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. And we think we actually know where that manger was. That manger would have been in what we think outside of Bethlehem. It's talked about in the Hebrew scriptures, and it's actually written about in extra-biblical resources that we know that there was what's called the Tower of the Flock. 
Uh, my wife and I went to Bethlehem in 2000, went to Israel in 2017, and, and Jerusalem is right here, and then there's a valley like that, and Bethlehem is five miles down that valley. And it kind of, this valley has all these little hills that kind of stick out into the valley like that, and then Bethlehem is on top of one of those hills. And next to that was the Tower of the Flock. Tower of Migdal or Igdal, something like that, but in English it'd be Tower of the Flock. And the first floor was like a first aid station for any wounded lambs and sheep. But the second floor, the head shepherd would be up there. And on clear nights when the moon was full, he could see all these little campfires up and down the valley of all the little shepherds and their little, their little group of guys and like their flocks. And, and one of them could, you know, if there was a predator nearby, could give the signal and he would see that signal and he'd warn all of the other shepherds through the valley that there was a predator and those guys would get up from their campfires and bring in all of the sheep to protect them that kind of thing. But the first floor of the tower of the flock uh, was a resource place for shepherds. The second floor, I think of it like a, uh, like a small barn or a large shed. The second floor had a deck and probably had a roof over it and maybe a railing, but don't think of it like a tower like what we think of in like medieval England. It wasn't like that kind of a tower. It was basically a two-story shed that somebody could stand on. At this Tower also, if you were a shepherd that had an emergency with one of your sheep, you could run it to the tower of the flock and they would help you care for it so it would become healthy and you could take it back. And you wouldn't lose that asset for whoever owned the flock that you were being paid to take care of. And if you were lucky, when the high priest would walk those five miles to the tower of the flock, every shepherd could bring what they thought was the best sheep in their flock to the tower of the flock and present it to the high priest, and the high priest would inspect all of these different sheep, all of these lambs. And then he was looking for blemishes. They couldn't have any discolorations, any scars, any deformities, or any bruises. Then what the, 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 the high priest would do is, is he would pick one of these sheep to be the sacrifice for the atonement of the sins of mankind and the Holy of Holies on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And if the priest picked your sheep... Man, that's, that's a big deal. It'd be like the horse breeders who have a horse that win the derby. That's, that's a big deal, man. So if your sheep was chosen, you had to make sure it didn't get any bruises between the time the high priest picked it and when he came back. Because if it got hurt or bruised after he picked it, that meant that you couldn't care for it and you'd start getting a bad reputation as a shepherd. So what you would do is, is you would wrap your sheep with strips of cloth and then you would, you would bundle it so that it couldn't trip or get hurt anymore. And then you would lay it in the manger so that nothing else could hurt it. So when you had a sheep that was going to be the sacrifice to atone for the sins of mankind on the Ark of the Covenant by the high priest, it was wrapped in strips of cloth and it was laid in the manger. But this isn't actually where Luke starts the story of the manger. He actually starts the story of the birth of Jesus in the first chapter, 15 months earlier than when Jesus was actually born. And he doesn't start with Mary and Joseph. He starts with Mary's cousin, Elizabeth. Now, Elizabeth and their family is kind of famous because she married Zechariah, who's a part of the lineage of Aaron, and he's a priest. He's not the high priest, but he's the highest priest in their region, in their neighborhood. He was the one that would offer sacrifices. He took his turn in the temple. He was one of the underpriests. So like they were like the good side of the family. So like Mary came up in the world because she married into Zachariah's family. And so everybody knows Zachariah and Elizabeth. 
Because they're priests. A lot of the families in that area would have gone to Zechariah and presented their lambs for Zechariah to offer on their behalf when it was his turn to serve in the temple as well. But they couldn't have any kids. And no doubt that was heartbreaking, especially if you want kids, right? Some of you guys may be in that situation. You've just prayed and begged God, God, give us a kid, give us a kid. Why won't you give us a kid? Why won't you give us a kid? And Elizabeth and Zechariah were in the same condition. And then she goes through menopause. So now it's never gonna happen. She's beyond the age of childbearing, and so they've given up. And it's, it's, it's been a sad thing for the family, no doubt, as it is in any family. But then the angel comes to Elizabeth and says, you're going to get pregnant with your husband, Zechariah. And your baby is going to be the one that the prophet Isaiah said would show up right before the Messiah shows up. Your baby's going to be the one that says, make the path straight for the Lord. Flatten the hills and straighten the crooked roads because the Messiah is coming, and you shall name him John. We know him in history as John the Baptist. Is Jesus' cousin. Jesus' mom and John's mom are marrying Elizabeth. So Elizabeth is now pregnant, and that's when John introduces us to Mary. And this is in Luke chapter 1, and I'm going to start reading in verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary, and she was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph. We've already talked about that. He's a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. And I don't, when we read this kind of stuff, we either go, I doubt it, or we go, I bet that stuff happened to them all the time. We actually only have one time that anybody ever supernaturally spoke to Mary, and this is it. Never seen an angel before. We don't know that she ever saw an angel again right? It wasn't a common thing. There's only a few times in all of human history that the Bible covers, and the Bible covers about 1,500 years. There's only a few times when anybody ever actually saw an angel. They would go hundreds of years, even in the Jewish stories, without any miracles happening. Like our country's only 200 and what, 50 years old? So it wasn't uncommon to go that long, even in Bible times, between something miraculous happening. So it was as rare then as it is now. And so Mary has an angel show up, and the Bible says her response is what your response would be. Look at the next verse. Verse 29, confused and disturbed. Mary's like, what the heck is happening? What the heck part? That's in the Greek. <laughs> what the heck is happening? She's confused and disturbed. She's upset. I'd be upset if an angel showed up. I'd probably poop my pants, if I'm going to be honest with you. That'd be terrifying. Next thing the angel says is, the Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Verse 30, don't be afraid, Mary. Now, you wouldn't tell somebody not to be something that they weren't. So for the angel to say, don't be afraid, Mary, means that Mary was what? She was afraid. Now, that seems weird to us also because the, when we think of angels, you're thinking of that really good-looking angel from the paintings. Homeboy's jacked. You know that angel? Or if it's a girl angel, she is smoking hot, right? You know that angel. Like, picture an angel in your head. They're attractive. Am I right? Yes or no? Yeah. All the angels we think of are beautiful. They've all got wings. And I don't mean to ruin your religion, but the only angels that we know for sure had wings are the ones, are the ones that serve in the presence of God before the throne of God. The Bible doesn't describe the other angels with wings. They might have wings. I'm just saying the Bible doesn't describe them with them. That's all I'm saying. The angels that go into the town of Sodom and Gomorrah with Lot, everybody thinks they're just regular men, so we know they didn't have wings. 
Anyway, I don't want to mess with your religion too much. You guys are like, I don't like this church. You just took all the wings off of all the angels. Um, I don't know. They may have had. But what I do know is that when you saw an angel, you weren't like, hey, how you doing? What's your name? Right? Like the angels I've seen in the paintings, I would go, hey, how you doing? Right? Um, but not then. You, every time an angel shows up, almost the first thing coming out of their mouth is, hey, 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 you ain't going to die. Fear not. Like, don't be afraid. It's almost the first thing they say every time. Don't be afraid. Why? Because when you saw an angel, it terrified you. So whatever they look like is incredibly intimidating, right? So she's, she's confused. I almost said dazed and confused. That's a different thing uh, for a different movie. But she's confused and disturbed, and she's afraid. Uh, don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you found favor with God. You'll conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. Now, this is the first time that Jesus shows up in the whole Bible, but this actually isn't his name. It's how it's interpreted in English. You're familiar with this already, like with the name John. In English, we say John. In Spanish, you say Juan, right? In Portuguese, you say João. I don't know if I'm saying that right. But I said João, and somebody said, it's not João, it's João. And I go, João? And they go, no, it's João. And I'm like, I just said that, right? So it's like João. Like, there's a nasal sound in there somewhere, right? And then, uh, and, and then in, in Creole, it's, it's just Jean. It's the same name, though, right? So in English, we say Jesus. But the word that the angel used is actually Yeshua, or Yahashua was his name. Now, that's a very common name. Lots of babies were named after Yeshua. Yeshua is famous in the Jewish story. He's the one who succeeded Moses. Moises. Moises dies. He's the one that brings all of the people out of Egypt. Egypt was always a picture of sin. But before they could leave sin, they had to apply the blood of the lamb to the doorpost of their house. And anybody who, by faith, accepted that God would accept the sacrifice of the lamb on their behalf could escape from sin. Moses takes them out in the desert. He gives them God's law, gives them the rest of the Torah. All of that's revealed to them while they're in the desert. But the law wasn't, Moses wasn't good enough to get them all the way. It was enough to get them out of sin, but wasn't enough to take them into the promised land. So Moses dies in the wilderness. And his successor is a man named Yahshua, Joshua. So I don't know why in English we didn't translate Jesus' name as Joshua because that is, it's the same name. In, Yeshua is the same name as Joshua. It's the same name. I, mean, I know why it's because of the Latin Vulgate, but that's a whole other story. You can keep calling Jesus Jesus because I'm sure he understands more than one language. He's not been having gone, I don't know who they're talking to. Right, he knows, he knows we call him Jesus, and I'm sure he's, he's fine with it. But his name is Yeshua, and his name means God saves. My youngest son, Ryan, is Joshua Ryan Sears. Ryan means little king or one who leads. So Ryan's name means one who leads to a God who saves. So Joshua is the God who saves, the God who finishes the job, the, job who, the one who carries you into the promised land. So what the law was incapable of doing, the, uh, Paul, the apostle, started off as a Pharisee, a religious, a religious expert of Jewish law. He said the law is good enough to point out how we fall short of God's standard, but it's not good enough to reconcile us to God. What we need is grace. 
right? So Moses wasn't able to take them into the promised land, Yahshua was. And in the same way that Moses brings the law, Jesus brings grace and is able to take us into the presence of God to reconcile us to God. And so when the angel said to Mary that your baby's name is gonna be Yahashua, she knows where that name comes from. Josh was the one who finished the job for Moses. And she knows that this angel is telling her, your baby is named after that dude because of what your baby is gonna do, right? Like she's getting all of this. Now you might not have caught all of this, but she's raised in a synagogue. The only Bible she has is the Tanakh. Her family, her, all of her brothers would have had the Torah memorized by the time they were seven, right? Hebrew school, they had it memorized by the time they were seven. So they're very, she's getting, she's, she's not missing any of this. Keep going. He will be very great, verse 32, and be called the son of the most high. That's also a reference to something that Isaiah, the second most famous prophet after Moses had said, and we just sang about it. His name shall be wonderful counselor, his name. You guys remember singing that song just now? That actually comes from the Jewish Bible because Isaiah said that when the Messiah comes, he will show up. He says, a child will be given, a son will be born, and the government will be upon his shoulders. But his name will be Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. So Isaiah had said that when the Messiah shows up, it will be God as a baby boy. That's what the scripture says. So when, she, when the angel says he'll be the son of the most high, she knows that that is God who shows up as the son and the son who is the physical manifestation of God. And she's, she's getting all of this. Keep reading. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever, and his kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, well, how can this happen? I'm a virgin. And the angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the baby will be born holy. Those go together. This isn't the first time that God's ever done that. This happened in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, in Genesis chapter 1, actually it's at the end of chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates all living things and creates them with life. But when it comes to mankind who's created in the image of God, out of the dust of the ground he forms Adam and then he breathes his life into Adam, which is what gives us a soul, which is the reason why death isn't the final chapter for us. It's just the end of the first chapter for us. Um... He breathed life into Adam. And then Eve was taken out of Adam. And in the same way that God breathed life into the dust of the ground, from dust we came to dust we shall return, said at a lot of funerals. And that's why God is going to breathe life into Mary. In the same way that he created life out of nothing here, he's creating life out of nothing here also. And here's why that's important. Because Eve sinned against God when she ate the fruit in the garden, and the Bible says that she ate from the fruit that she wasn't supposed to eat because she was tricked. Adam wasn't tricked. Adam willfully rebelled against God. So God holds Adam more responsible for sin in the world. Romans chapter five says that it is because of our human father that we come from, that we inherit our sin nature. Some of you women were like, I knew it. <laughs> Just like his daddy. If you have a human father, you are not born with a clean slate. The Bible says that we are born with a predisposition towards sin, and we see this in nature. 
Like, this is what the actual evidence says. Now, I went to grad school, and I studied some. I had a couple of, like, psychology courses because I was going to be a counselor. I took two classes, which was long enough to know. I don't have the patience for that. So wisely, I didn't waste any more money, switched to my major. Um, but they taught us the clean slate theory. I don't believe in the clean slate theory at all. It contradicts scripture. The clean slate theory says everybody is neutral. No, they're not. Have you ever had a kid? Holy cow. You don't have to teach a kid to hit. You don't have to teach a kid to steal. You don't have to teach a kid to be selfish. You don't even have to teach them to lie. You know where they learn that? Your brother-in-law. That's where they learn that. Uh, in the last service, I said, their mama. But my wife's in this service, and I'm a smart man. Uh, you have to teach them to be good. You have to teach them to be honest. You have to teach them to share. You have to teach them to be kind. It doesn't come natural to us. Why? Because we have a human father. We're not born holy. We're born tainted by sin. We're predisposed towards selfishness. We have a predisposition towards it, but not Jesus. Because he was not going to have a human father, God was going to breathe life into her womb, that's why the baby would be born holy. Only three humans were ever created holy. Adam and Eve, and they screwed it up, and Jesus, who's the only other person who truly had free will not to sin. The rest of us were predisposed towards it, but not Jesus. Back at it. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Verse 36, what's more? And by the way, it's almost like he's not sure if she's buying it yet. So what the angel says is, what's more, your relative Elizabeth, this is verse 36, has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say that she was barren, but she's conceived a son and now is in her sixth month. And he doesn't tell her anything about that baby being the one that's going to come and prepare the way for Mary's baby. He just says, by the way, Mary, you know Mary? Yeah, she's our cousin. Everybody knows Mary. And she never had any kids. And now she's past the age of childbirth. Yeah, 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 she's pregnant. But is she? And he goes, yeah, six months pregnant. Why? Because if she's having a hard time believing that God can do the impossible, go look at Mary's belly. And then the angel says this, for nothing is impossible with God. And Mary's got a choice. And this is not an easy choice. Because if she goes on, God's not going to force this on her. She has a choice. But if she does this, no one's going to believe her. Her parents... Like, how are they going to respond to their daughter getting pregnant before she's married? And what if Joseph tells the truth and says that it's not his kid? What does that say about her? Like, this is not an easy, she may be completely destitute and on her own. She may become a beg. like, there's, this is not an easy decision. So for Mary to do this, she's got to go all in. Like, you don't dip your toe in this swimming pool. You are jumping off the high dive. And you're just hoping there's enough water in there that you don't crack your neck. Right? Here's her response. Verse 38, Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. So Mary made a decision to fully surrender, no matter where this would take her and what would happen. Joseph has a different response. We see Joseph's response in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. This is how Jesus, the Messiah, was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her fiancé, was a good man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break up with her privately. 
Did Joseph believe Mary's story, yes or no? No. He didn't ask for this. Like when he's dreaming of someday having a baby and gets in finding a wife and his dreams did not include getting engaged to a woman who would get pregnant with another man after she was engaged to him. But he loves her. What's he supposed to do? Now, he can marry her, but if he marries her, she got pregnant, she's engaged to you, and then you married her? All right, we know whose kid it is. It's yours. You were dishonorable. You took advantage of her living in your home. You're a scumbag. That's what it says about him if he marries her. So he wants, the only way he can preserve his reputation, the only way he can be a good and godly businessman and have any chance at any other family agreeing to give him their daughter is he has to divorce her. He has to break this off. But if he does this publicly, then she's going to be dragged to the city elders at the gates. They're going to pronounce her guilty of adultery. And according to the Torah, she's going to be dragged outside the city and stoned to death with rocks. And they're going to make him throw the first one. Why does he want to do that? The only thing I can think of is that he actually did love her. So he's going to do it privately. I don't know what privately looks like. Is he going to go to her parents and say, listen, she's pregnant, but I promise you it's not my kid, but I'm not marrying her. I don't trust her. But I'm not going to, oh my gosh, are you going to, what are you going to do? Listen, I'm not going to take it to the city of the elders. Like, let's figure it out. Like, right? Like, that's what he's thinking about. But his whole life is going to change if he does this. And you know what he did. Watch what happens. As, verse 20, as he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit and shall have a son. And you are to name him Yeshua, Yahashua, for he will save his people from their sins. So he marries her. And everything he was afraid of happening happened. Jesus was, um, when, when Jesus becomes famous, and he's revealing himself as God in the flesh, he goes back to Nazareth. We talked about this last week. And when he gets back to his hometown and he's there on the Sabbath, he goes to synagogue as every good Jewish person would have. And when he's there as essentially a celebrity, his home rabbi goes, Yeshua is here. And everybody claps. And he says, why don't you read the scriptures from, for today? And so Jesus would have gotten up and walked over to the cabinet that you've seen if you've ever been to a bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah. He would have opened up and he pulled out the scroll of Isaiah and he unrolls it and he reads the passage of scripture in Isaiah where it talks about the Messiah being the son of God. And then Jesus says, today, this passage of scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And they're like, what? We know you're Joseph's kid. So did the people in Nazareth believe Jesus' story or Mary's story, yes or no? Nope. In fact, there's another time where Jesus is preaching in Jerusalem and the Pharisees are trying to discredit him publicly in front of the entire crowd. And when they get a chance to speak in the middle of Jesus' teaching, they get up and they go, at least we're not illegitimate sons. Why do they say that? Nobody believed Mary's story. Nobody believed Joseph. Do you think that affected the way Jesus was treated as a kid in Hebrew school? Heck yeah. Man, he lived with this stigma his entire life. So Mary had to surrender for whatever was going to come next. Joseph had to trust, even if there was nothing he could do about it. Joseph didn't pick this. Mary did. He didn't choose this. And even if God doesn't fix things, 
I'm still gonna trust them. That was his choice. And there's one other group of people that interact with Jesus on the night that he was born, and that's the shepherds. And for this, we're gonna go back to Luke chapter two. I'm gonna start reading in verse eight. It says, that night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep, and suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them, and they were terrified. We've already talked about that. That happens every time an angel shows up. But the angel assured them, don't be afraid. It's always the first thing they say. He said, I bring you good news that will be great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. And they knew exactly where that was. That's the Tower of Bethlehem. They had all taken sheep there. And for any of them that were lucky enough to have their sheep chosen, they would have wrapped their own sheep in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger also. So they knew exactly where this was at. Uh, and you will recognize him by this sign, verse 12. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. Suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord told us about. Verse 16, they hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph, and they knew exactly where to look. And there was the baby lying in the manger. And you know, when they walked in, And they actually saw baby Jesus wrapped up snugly in the manger like the sacrificial lamb that would have given its life as an atonement for the sins of mankind. And then the angels had just said, this is the Messiah. And Isaiah chapter 53 talks about the suffering Messiah who would take on the sins of the world. And David calls him the Holy One of Israel and says in chapter 16, verse 10 of Psalms that he would die but not be dead long enough to begin to decompose and Uh, Psalm chapter 22 is the crucifixion scripture which goes into detail what happens to the human body during crucifixion 850 years before crucifixion was even invented. But they're Jewish, so they know all of these scriptures, but when they see Jesus wrapped up like the sacrificial lamb in the manger, like the sacrificial lamb, they knew everything about why he had come and who he was. After seeing him, verse 17, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child and all who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. What I love is that God chose shepherds to be the only other people to see Jesus on the night that he was born. We've talked, we just got done doing a series on the wise men, and when they show up, Mary is already in a house. It says they found, the wise men found Jesus and Mary in a house. So it had to be at least day two. So your manger scenes, I'm not trying to ruin them. You can go ahead and keep the wise men, but they're like almost there, just so you know. So it goes, Jesus, Mary, Joseph, at least a sheep, Go ahead and put in some of the other cows or whatever, chickens. I don't know, maybe. But the wise men were not in the the manger or in the the, the, uh, stable, but they were almost there. The only people that actually got to see Jesus on the night that he was born is Joseph, Mary, and the shepherds. Why the shepherds? Because according to the Mishnah, which is the Jewish rules on how we're supposed to worship God, shepherds aren't even allowed to go to synagogue. There's a list of occupations that by their nature make you unclean and keep you from worshiping God in the, in the synagogue. Prostitution is one of those. Tax collecting, taking money and paying Romans to kill more Jewish people, that made you ineligible for worship. And being a shepherd. So if you were going to line up everybody in Israel in order of closest to God and farthest from God, you would have put shepherds at the way end of the line. 
And when God shows up in the human story, he doesn't wake up the rabbi from Bethlehem. He doesn't wake up the high priest from Jerusalem. He doesn't go to the upper class. He doesn't go to the middle class. And he doesn't go to 99% of the lower class. He goes to the very back of the line, the guys who felt that they were farthest from God and called them, hey, come on up. And he gives them a front seat. They get first access to God. What does that tell you about God? What does that tell you? There are people that are in this room who know lie. You probably, if you're going to line up all the religious people in the world, you would put yourself at the very end. Some of you probably hate God. And I've met a lot of people that hate God. And they hate God because God didn't do something that they told him to do. You ask God to save your marriage and you guys still got a divorce. Or you ask God to heal your grandmother and she still died of cancer or... You're still blaming God for what other people did to you when you were a kid. And you freaking hate him. And you are glad to be in the back of the line. You want nothing to do with him. You're like Captain Dan and Forrest Gump who ties himself to the mast in the hurricane and basically flips off God and says, do your worst, I freaking hate you. Others of you, you don't hate God. You're just, I don't freaking care anymore. You've just been so hurt by people that claim to be Christian. Like everybody in front of the line is full of crap. And if that's where this line goes, I don't want anything to do with it. Or maybe you didn't intend to do all the bad stuff that you did. Maybe you're the reason why your marriage broke up. Maybe you're the reason why your kid won't talk to you. You haven't been to church in years. And there's just darkness and you hate, man, you freaking hate everybody. And you feel like I can never, like, I'm so sick and far away from God. Like, this whole thing doesn't mean anything to me because it's not for me. And what I'm telling you is that the shepherds say that if you were the one who felt farthest from God, you are the main reason we're doing all of this. God would come to the person that felt farthest away from him this Christmas. Like, right now, forget Christmas. This is about you and God. There's nothing you've done that's make him stop loving you. He's never loved you more and he'll never love you less. He knows you're broken. That's why he showed up as the only clean slate so that he could qualify to take all the rest of the crap that we've done on himself off of us. And to prove it, God goes, I want the dudes in the back of the line to get the first shot. So if you felt you were in the back of the line, bro, you get the first shot at Jesus. And all three of them made similar choices. Mary had to choose to surrender for whatever God wanted. Joseph had to trust God, even if God didn't fix it. And the shepherds had to believe God enough to follow him with the rest of their lives. And you actually see that summarized by Jesus when he says what it takes to be in relationship with him. He said, if anybody wants to come after me, this is in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. If anybody wants to come after me, they must deny themselves. That's Mary. They must take up their cross, that's Joseph, and they have to actually follow me, that's the shepherds. Everybody comes to God the exact same way. There's no other path to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. Nobody goes to the Father unless they go through me. I used to be embarrassed of that verse, because what does that say about Judaism? What does that say about Islam? It has nothing to do with Judaism or Islam. It has nothing to do with Christianity. Jesus is the only person who's ever been born with a clean slate, who never sinned. He's the only one that qualifies to take on the sins of anybody else. I can't pay for your sins. I got my own sins to pay for. The only person who can pay for somebody who's guilty is somebody who's innocent. But who here is innocent? 
None of us. That's why we need Jesus. But if Jesus is just a dude, then one dude's life only covers one other dude's life. But if he's God as a dude, then how many people's lives is God's life worth? And the answer is all of them. That's why we need Jesus. So this has nothing to do with any other religions. Jesus didn't even come up with the word Christianity. That's what the Romans called the non-Jewish followers of a Jewish Messiah. Jewish followers of Jesus weren't called Christians. They were called Jews. But what do you call a Roman citizen who's now following a Jewish Messiah? They had no word for that, so they made up one. And the Greek word for Messiah was Christ, so they called them Christians. That's where the word comes from. They made up the word. Jesus didn't make up the word. Jesus is here for everybody. But he's the only path. This has nothing to do with anything else. If you were drowning in the ocean and I rowed a boat out to you and I said, if you don't get in this boat, you're going to drown. What are you saying about all the other boats in the ocean? <laughs> Bro, there ain't no other boats coming for you, kid. If you don't get in this boat, you will drown. Jesus is your only shot at God. What are you saying about all the other? There is no other path toward God. If you miss Jesus, you miss God. He doesn't say that to put down anybody else. He says that to highlight this path so that you don't miss it. But just like Mary, Joseph, and the shepherds, he won't make anybody walk it. That's your choice. I'm going to give you that chance now. If you would bow your head with me, we'll pray. God, I love you with all of my heart, and I'm thankful that you love every single one of us. There's none of us who've done anything so bad that you've kicked us to the curb. But God, if we spend the rest of our life disconnected from you and we die and enter eternity, that decision becomes permanent. And that's what you came to fix. God, I pray that every person is right now considering whether or not they're in right relationship with you. And if we're not, I don't have to change my life. I've got to change my heart. And if you want to be reconciled to God, then your prayer is, dear Jesus, forgive me, me, for sinning against you, for sinning against others, for sinning against my own conscience. Even if you're not religious, you've done things that made you feel bad about yourself. Where does that come from? Bro, you have a soul created in the image of God to be known and to know God. Jesus, I would never ask you to die on the cross for my sins. But since you volunteered, I will not disrespect you by ignoring that. Make that your prayer. God, take away my sin. I am surrendering all of me to you. I will trust you even if you don't fix it. And I will follow you with the rest of my life. This is my prayer. Can you make that your prayer? Dear God, I know that those that are calling on you to be saved are being saved. And the ones that don't, I just ask that you give them another chance on another day. Please, God, soften their heart and give them another chance. We ask this and thank you for everything you've done for us. In Jesus' name, we all say together, amen.